Hi, I'm Brandon Webb, former Navy SEAL and New York Times bestselling author. If you're like me, you want real security and defense news you can trust. You're probably tired of hearing the same talking heads, guys who have never seen the front lines, saying the same BS a hundred different ways. It's why I founded SoftRep.com, military-grade news produced entirely by our staff of military veteran journalists. Sign up at SoftRep for real news, real experience, real experts. SoftRep does what the mainstream media can't, deliver authentic content straight from the front lines. Sign up for a free trial membership today, and I'll give you my best-selling ebook, The Red Circle, for free. But that's not all. Your SoftRep membership also includes access to cutting-edge defense and security news by military experts, access to our award-winning documentaries, ebooks, special member events, and much more. So what are you waiting for? Let us know you're in. Sign up for your free trial membership today. Join our community at SoftRep.com. That's S-O-F-R-E-P.com. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Welcome to Software Radio on Target on Time with Big Phil Campion. And yes, I'm away, I'm abroad, and I'm locked down. Well, where am I locked down? I can tell you now, I got out of the UK on the day that Spain locked down. I landed in Spain and I went down to my place in a place called Alharin, which is in the very south of Spain, near the coast. And there I've remained in lockdown since since before the 20th of March. So we've been locked down for quite some time here. So I thought what I'd do this, 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 this show particularly, because I haven't been able to get to interview anybody. And obviously, you know, we're in isolation here. I'm not a priority by any stretch of the imagination to be going out to do anything. So I thought I'd explain to you how life is in Spain, what we've been doing here, and then we'd have a chat about the UK. And then we'll just see where we go from there, because these are interesting times for all of us. They really are. It's, it's an extremely difficult and challenging thing. And I think, you know, even in all my time in the forces, uh, all my time marauding around the world's hotspots, this has probably proved to be one of the most difficult things I've ever seen. So let's have a, let's have a quick chat then. As I said to you, I'm in a place called Alharin Al Grande, which is in southern Spain. It's near a place called Marbella and Malaga, okay, which are both on the coast. I'm slightly up in the mountains. Now, Spain as a whole is the, the worst hit European country at the moment, I think. We've overtaken Italy, who were in the original phases of this. They were the worst hit, but I think we've overtaken them now. We've had over 177,000 cases in Spain. 
18,000 plus deaths, okay, and there's still, even now, 86,000 over active cases in Spain. It's a lot of people, a lot of hardship, okay? Now, let's quickly talk about how quickly that escalated. Basically, on about the 14th of March, people were talking about it here, it was looking quite serious. And within, within an hour or so of me getting back off my flight, they were announcing, oh, a helicopter's just gone over, that's the first one I've seen around here for a bit. They were announcing that they were gonna lock everybody down. And I, at first, didn't really know what that was gonna mean. Surely, surely they couldn't just house arrest everybody, which is effectively what's been happening to me now. So what were the rules then? Well, the rules were simple. Stay in. If you want to go out, you can go to the, den- to the dentist, the doctors, or for vital shopping. And vital shopping only includes food. So food shopping was the only sort of shopping you were going to be able to do. Other than that, you couldn't travel in the car with anybody else. You had to be on your own. You weren't allowed out to exercise. If you had a dog and you lived in a flat or a condo, that had to, you had to take it within 20 metres, literally let it do its business, bring it back in again. We were completely and still are completely locked down, okay? And when I look around at some of the other people's interpretation of lockdown, when I look at the UK in particular, where people flaunt the rules left, right and centre, and they're still allowed out to go to the parks and exercise and all that sort of stuff, we really have had it at the other end of the scale here. We've had proper, full-on, hardcore lockdown, okay? That has meant lockdown. Now, if you don't believe me, you get onto, you get onto Google and Google the Spanish police on how they've dealt with people who've broken the rules here. They've locked them up. They've heavily fined them. They've been corralled and beaten with sticks. It really has been what I would describe as almost martial law. Uh, It's not martial law. It's for our own good that we are, you know, not being allowed out. Now, counter to all these conspiracy theories that I'm hearing, you know, 5G this and they've done it for that and China have done it on purpose – To me, all that stuff comes second, all right? What is the fact for me at the moment is that we're on lockdown and we have to adhere to what we're being told for the good and benefit of everybody else. Now, another attitude that people have had is, well, I'm not likely to get it, I'm too young, I'm too fit. A, this thing has been taking anybody, and B, you know, even if you don't get it, or even if you do get it and get better from it, you're taking up the time of the professionals that are being paid to try and curb this thing for us, the health services and all those sorts of people, you know, you're taking their time. At best, at worst, you're passing the disease to somebody who's not going to get through and live the other side. So it's not been good, some of the stuff I've seen over here, you know, of, of people flouting the rules. And there were a few to start off with, and that's why the police had to get so tough. They're just starting to, to, to think about relaxing measures here. Non-essential workers went to work this week for the first time. That said, that was only building site workers and gardeners and people that clean pools and that sort of stuff. It wasn't, there's no shops open. There's nothing going on like that at all over here at the moment. And for the foreseeable future, we really don't know when any of that sort of stuff will come into play again because it's, it's like I say, it's, a, it's an extremely tough one. So, that said, what have I been doing? Well, I've been doing a little bit. Of, I don't have a lot of space here. I have a, I have a townhouse 
with a very small garden and a very small roof terrace. And so my activities have been eating, sleeping, loads and loads of stuff online. I've done loads of stuff online. And if you look at my social media, it's full of stuff that I've been learning how to do. I've been learning to edit. I've been doing this. I've been doing that. I've been putting stuff on online for the Army Cadet Force, running various competitions and all that sort of stuff. But the harsh reality of it for me is I'm not earning either. You know, there's no work for me at the moment, and I'm in a similar position to millions of people around the world who are going to be infected by this in a financial term. I think when I look at it, if it was just me who was going to be affected by this, then, you know, I'd be feeling pretty hard done by. But when we look around, it's everybody is going to get some. Everybody's going to be put in a position when they're pushed and pressed and have to make things go further than they probably would do normally. And they're going to have to make, make the best of a bad job when we come out the other side of this. What we do need to do, though, is make sure that we look after the people around us. We keep in touch with our loved ones. We keep in touch with people who are vulnerable. And we try and help anybody where and whenever we can. Because there's always, and I've looked around a lot now. You've had a lot of time on your hands, which is a commodity I don't normally get a lot of. But you look around, and there's always, always, always somebody who is worse off than you are. I mean, in the UK, our Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, he's been to the edge. He's been to the edge and back. He's been in intensive care. I heard he was on a ventilator. He was certainly on oxygen. You know, he's been looked after. And no matter what your political sway is in the UK, whether you like him or you don't like him, I wouldn't wish this disease on anybody. I really wouldn't. And it looks increasingly, you know, like anybody can get this, which we know they can. So... It's been very, very, very challenging. And to see your own Prime Minister on the television one day saying he felt a bit sick and then in intensive care within a very short period of time, it just highlighted to everybody how this, how this thing can take off very, very quickly. So I don't want to bang on completely just about coronavirus, but that's where I stand on it. Like I say, I'm in Spain, I'm locked down. If I was in the UK, I'd be semi-locked down. If I was in the States right now, you guys are locked down as well. There's not a person on this planet at the moment who it's not going to affect. And, you know, I hope, I really hope that we all get through this, obviously. We're going to take some hits along the way. In any conflict, you'll take hits along the way. I view this as a conflict. I view our, our nurses and doctors and our health workers are on the front line of this conflict. You know, they're, they're extremely brave people, some of these. They're going to work. They know that they might contract the disease themselves, and they know they might not survive the disease. And so, you know, they are, they are the soldiers. They are the warriors. They are the ones on the front line. They are the ones producing the goods at the moment. And all we can do is sit back and watch. And hopefully, you know, this will pass. If there is an opportunity whereby I can make a difference for somebody and help, then obviously I will. But until then, the best thing I can do to help is keep myself out of the way listen to what's going on around me and adhere to the rules that are being put on put on onto me and not make a hindrance of myself so that we basically stand the best chance of getting through this without me passing on to somebody else if I had it so there we go that's that's I didn't want to I didn't want to linger on the coronavirus we've talked about it for a good 10 minutes now and I'm going to put it to bed there that's all I really want to talk about today I want to look forward to coming out the other side of this and we were talking about this me and Wendy, uh, it's a good job I get on with my partner, by the way, because we've been locked down now for quite some time together. It's the longest I think I've ever been at home. And I was chatting to Wendy the other day, and I was saying, the other end of this, the other side of this, what's it going to be like? 
are you going to go running out the door when they say you can finally go out? Are you going to be a bit timid? Are you going to go, wow? Because I'm half expecting for them to say, right, okay, lockdown's up, over, and people are going to go back out. And then I think there might be another, another pop at this. I think there might be another sort of like flare-up where I think we might even get locked down again. So I certainly won't be running into the first bar and jumping around and carrying people on my shoulders and singing and drinking and yelling and yip yarring because I think that would be irresponsible. I think we've got to accept that we've got to be very careful when we come out the other side of this because we don't know who's got it and who hasn't got it. And there's not enough medical stuff post this that we know about at the moment that's, that gives me a lot of confidence, to be honest. I said I wasn't going to talk about it, and I carried on, didn't I? So there we go. Right. Hi, I'm Brandon Webb, former Navy SEAL and founder of The Cray Club. Are you tired of scrambling to figure out the perfect Father's Day gift for the most important guy in your life? Think they'd like military-grade survival gear delivered directly to their doorstep? Then join over 250,000 members and gear up with Crate Club, the box built by Navy SEALs, Army Rangers, and Special Ops guys. Sign up, and Crate Club will send you high-class military-grade gear like backpacks, flashlights, hammocks, holsters, vests, and more. That means whatever your favorite guy is into, it'll come right to his doorstep. Then he'll have the confidence of a Navy SEAL that it's going to get the job done. Subscribe at Crate Club today, and we'll go even further. We're including a free copy of my best-selling ebook, The Killing School, about America's elite snipers. I'm Brandon Webb, and I can't wait to raise the grade on military gear in America. So let me know you're in. Sign up today at CrateClub.com. C-R-A-T-E Club.com. West Africa. Let's have a little bit of chat about West Africa because I thought I completely changed tack. I spent a lot of time in West Africa, did some various jobs there. I worked all the gold mines in places like Guinea and Mali, Cote d'Ivoire. I worked up and down on the anti-piracy side of things, Togo, Nigeria, um, and of course I served in Sierra Leone where I was part of the hostage rescue mission way back in 2000, which is actually 20 years ago this year. But the reason I wanted to go to West Africa was one story I thought I'd tell you today about Togo. And Togo, <laughs> lovely place, um, beautiful beaches, great coastline, all the attributes of a West African country, but completely unstable. And what you would find in West Africa would be that some countries would be stable for a period, and then the neighbouring countries would be arguing with each other, then it would all spill out into a full-on war, and then you'd get a displacement of people, they'd move into the next country, then they'd start arguing, the whole thing would go round and round and round, basically by displacement of people caused by agro-inflaming countries that would probably have stayed peaceful for years. So that's how it went in West Africa, and I certainly, you know, when I first went to Mali, Mali was peaceful, but that's now in tatters. Places like Guinea, they'd had loads and loads of that. They'd had a sort of like almost a coup in Guinea, uh, just before I got there. So it's a very, very volatile place, West Africa. And I thought I'd just share with you a story. When you're, when you're travelling through these places as a white man, uh, you have to be very, very careful because the place has been flooded over the years with people trying to topple various governments. And especially places like South Africa, a lot of the soldiers from there who needed to earn decent money would disappear up into West Africa and take part in all sorts of coups. So when you were sort of like in your 30s to 40s, 
a male white traveling through West Africa, sometimes on your own. And I was on the, sto- on the story, I'm going to tell you, I was traveling on my own. It's a fair assumption to the authorities that you could be a paramilitary type. And especially my appearance. I've never been able to shake my appearance. You know, I'm a fairly big lad. You know, I've got short hair. I fit the description of a mercenary straight away. So I draw the attention of the authorities every time I go into a West African country. I'll attract some sort of attention. And certainly in places like Guinea, I even got followed and tailed and all sorts of stuff. And it was quite it was quite obvious that they, they wanted to know my whereabouts. And very often I would travel and say to people, you know, I'm a, I'm health and safety or I'm a consultant for the rig. I'd never, ever, ever use the word security because as soon as you tie yourself into the security world, it's like it's like putting a magnet on your head to pull in as much trouble as you ever could. So I never used to do that. Whenever I was in West Africa, I was always a health and safety consultant or I was a consultant full stop or there was always some reason for me to be there other than security. However, every time I was there, it was to do with security. And Togo was no was no exception. I went to Togo. I was supposed to be joining a ship. Now, Togo's got a massive coastline and we were going to be getting on a ship and I was going to be going with four other people from Togo uh, as my escorts and escorting the ship. And that's how it was out there. You'd have a... You'd have an expat. I flew into Lome Airport, which is the capital of Togo. Before I'd left from London, I'd been asked if I could undergo an anti-piracy tasking, which was to be taking four local lads onto a ship. They would be armed. I'd be unarmed. However, I was allowed to take body armour, a helmet, etc., etc. Now, before I left, the company in the UK assured me that I had all the right credentials and paperwork for this body armour because travelling into a West African country with body armour presents you with massive challenges if you don't have the right paperwork. So I sat down with the office in the afternoon in London, went for all the paperwork, went for all the, all the gear that they wanted me to take with me. There was some binoculars there, there was some GPS stuff, there was a satellite phone, etc, etc, etc. All the normal stuff that you would expect to take on an anti-piracy task, except weapons, which were being supplied and used by these local guys in Togo. Not a problem. I didn't have a drama of that whatsoever. The shipping company I was going to be working for were a Swedish shipping company. I'd worked with them before. There was no real drama. We were literally going to be dropping some fuel off somewhere, probably down in Nigeria, coming back out again, I'd get off and the thing would disappear. Fine, happy with that, what a great trip, okay? It was good money in them days as well, okay? I was earning, you know, circa five, six, seven hundred dollars a day sometimes. So it was all right. So without further ado, without questioning anybody, I jumped on a flight down to Lone. When I got to Lone, I remember getting off the plane, got through customs, all right, got, not, not through customs, I got through the passport control, okay? Bit of a queue, but it normally is in a West African country. You've got a queue there. Didn't really pull any third-party attention. The authorities weren't really interested in me. You know, a quick look up and down. Are you on your own, sir? Yes, I'm on my own. It wasn't a problem. Things were going swimmingly. I thought, this is awesome. It's going to be cool. I'm going to get through the other side. I've got all the paperwork. Everything's correct. As we came out, I got my bags. They came straight around the conveyor belt. Not a problem there. So the bags were there. Got the bags onto a trolley and started pushing them out towards the, towards the green channel. Nothing to declare. Now, in Togo, at the time, and I probably would imagine still now, it wasn't a case that you just walked through. Every bag was put through a scanner. So as I got to go through the green channel, I got called to one side. 
and my bags were taken off me and put onto the onto the conveyor belt, and they went through the through the X-ray machine. I didn't have a problem with that. This is when things started to change. I saw the guy who was watching the television monitor stop the monitor and pull the first bag back through into the machine. And I'm like, why is he doing that? So <laughs> I look at him. <laughs> he looks at me. He sends it through again. He's not happy. It stops on the other side. And as I go to pick it up, no, no, sir, leave it there. Then the other one goes through. Again, scrutiny. They're both through now. I'm not allowed to pick up either of my bags. They ask me what I'm doing, and I tell them. I say I'm, I'm working um, as health and safety on a ship, and I'll be staying in a hotel near Loam and getting on the ship tomorrow. And here's my paperwork. And all my paperwork I had on me backed it all up. Okay, sir, why do you need these equipments in here? And they pointed out straight away. They opened the bag. They're in. There's body armor. There's a helmet. There's the GPS stuff. There's binos. Why do you need all this gear? Well, I say, you know, we, you, know you experience piracy on your coast here. I've never, you know, I've been asked if I can wear this stuff while I'm on board. And as a health and safety representative, it's best if I wear the protective clothing that I've been issued. And I, with that, I bring out the paperwork and I give them the paperwork. About five minutes into reading the paperwork, which I thought was an extraordinary long time, the guy says, this is no good. And now there's two or three other people in the background who've stepped forward in, in uniform, in police uniform, and they're all arguing, they're pulling the kit about, they're getting it out, they're looking at it, they're staring at it, they're pulling it around, they're, they're almost, it's like they're sizing up, who's going to keep it? And then a guy with a suit comes along, and as soon as you've got with a suit comes along, you know you're in the shit, all right? So he says to me, he says, are you a mercenary? Straight up, like that, are you a mercenary? No, no, I'm not a mercenary. I'm health and safety, and I'm going to work on a ship. Uh, which is going to Nigeria from here, and we fear there may be pirates on there, and I'm there to make sure that the health and safety is in place, and we have security from your country. So you're a security guard. No, I'm not security. I'm health and safety. Why do you have body armour? Because I need body armour. You can see the conversation going round and round and round and round. It was horrendous. Anyway, eventually, they say to me, you won't be going on the ship, sir. They take me out, take me away, and put me in the back of a van. I think, no, I'm going to get arrested here. So in my pocket, I've got my satellite phone, one of my sat phones, one of the old Garmin's with the big arm on the side of the antenna. I'm on it straight away, back to the office. They stop me from making the phone call. They take the phone from me, and they put me in the back of this van, and they drive me out, not far from the airport, but I can't really guess where I'm going, and it must have been another, t another, another, another police station somewhere. Can't really remember the way that much because I was in the back of this van. I couldn't really see anything out. And when I got to the other end, they pulled me straight out and there was a container, a shipping container, and they put me in this shipping container. Now, I can tell you now, I've been in some stinking places in my life, but this shipping container was one of the stinkiest places I've ever been. I get in this shipping container and the only window in there is about knee height and it's not really a knit window, it's just a hole cut in the metal with bars across it so you can't get out of it. And it's only a tiny, I could only, if I could only have got my head out of it if I could get anything out of it. So there's no chance I'm gonna escape from this thing. And they just leave me in there. Now I can tell you now, Togo isn't a cold place. It's proper hot. And God knows how many other people must have been kept in this thing before me, or how long I'd even been there, I didn't know. It was stinking. People must have been urinating in it, defecating in it, sicking in it, you name it, it was probably one of the most unhealthiest places I've ever been on this planet. Anyway, 
I'm in there for what seems like ages. And then I'm brought out. I'm taken into a building, which is next door to it, into a table where there's a guy sat behind a desk who starts interrogating me again as to what I'm doing in the country. Why am I here? And I have to make a series of phone calls between them, the office back in London. It's all done on my sat phone. They've got no phone capability whatsoever. So all this stuff I'm trying to justify has all been done on phone. Uh, Eventually, when we've been in there for about another half hour, they sent me back out again. This happened two or three times, and I went back to the container, out of the container, in the container, out of the container. Sometimes they would question me in the container. I was getting really fed up of it. Uh, no food, no water, no nothing. And eventually, they come and get me out. They drag me off up into the office again. And I get told that I won't be getting on a ship and that I'm going to be held under arrest in a hotel. Uh, so they take me out to this hotel. The first one I did when I got there, I went to the room, and there's a policeman stood outside my room. It was horrendous. I could only have room service come to the room, so there was a limited limited choice of food. Uh, it wasn't a great hotel, so I knew the room service wasn't going to be any better, and I had some sort of rice and curry type thing with some French bread. The French bread, actually, to be fair, was quite nice, but uh, everything else was pretty stinking. And I remember I was then kept there for another couple of days before they put me on another flight and sent me back to the UK. Now, when I got back to the UK, I phoned up the guy that I'd been working for, and... Uh, he said, because I, hadn't done the, because I hadn't done the transit, he wasn't paying me for it either. Oh, you can imagine my face. Absolutely no chance on earth was I not being paid for this job. I remember I had all the phone calls with him, arguing with this fella, and eventually I managed to get paid. Uh, but only before I threatened to take a trip up to London and go and visit him in person. But I got paid. So that was, uh, that was one of my West African experiences. I thought I'd share that with you. Just to, just to let you know that it's not the first time Big Phil's been in lockdown before. <laughs> Even though uh, hotel lockdown in Togo was probably worse than the, than the house arrest I'm in at the moment in Spain. But there you go. Certainly, it was, it, it, there's nothing here that compares with the container that I was put in because that was absolutely full-on proper stinking. It was honking, it really was. I'll give you some more stories from West Africa next time I'm on. Uh, I've got some cracking ones from Guinea and that, I really have. Yeah, West Africa, proper place to be. But there you go, more of that next time. Okay, let's just wrap this up here then. Um, what have we got to look forward to? Well, it's all doom and gloom if you tune into the to the mainstream media. So get yourself on here for a bit of fun. Soft Rep, always got some cool things going on. Don't forget to check out the Crate Club. They really have up their game just lately. I've been following it very closely and there is some extremely cool items of gear. I've got myself a YouTube channel up and running, SAS Man Reviews, have a butcher's at that. That's really good fun. Obviously, all my social media and anything that Soft Rep or Crate Club do is repeated on all my sites, which is at Big Phil Campion. Until next time, have fun, and I'll see you all later on. Take care. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio.